Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. I'm Andrew Morton, and welcome to our podcast series, Catechism and Sacraments Q&A. Today's episode will provide some insight and thoughts on question 11. Today on our panel, we have, first of all, John Leopold, who serves as an elder here at Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church. John, thank you for being with us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. We also have on our panel Sam Richter, who serves as one of our deacons at WEPC. Sam, thanks for joining us. Hi, Andrew. And Sam and John together serve as a teaching team for our Wednesday night City on a Hill Ministries. So it's exciting to have you both on our panel today, gentlemen. And joining us today as our third panelist is Megan McFarland, who is our communication director here at WEPC. Megan, thanks for being part of our panel today. Absolutely happy to be here. This is an unusual role for you, Megan, as you're normally (laughs) hosting this panel, but we're excited to have you as one of our panelists, and I'm delighted to be your substitute today hosting this conversation. You will do a fantastic job. Well, thanks for that vote of confidence. Let's go ahead and jump into our conversation. Okay. The 11th question in the New City Catechism is, what does God require in the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments? And the answer is, 6th, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. The Bible passage listed with this answer is Romans 13, verse 9, which says, For the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So friends, using this passage as a springboard for our conversation, our first question will dig into this idea of loving our neighbor. In our culture, we think of a neighbor as someone who lives near us or inhabits the same spheres of life that we do, but the Bible uses the word neighbor a little bit differently. So my question for you is twofold. First, how do you see the concept of our neighbor explained and defined in the Bible? And second, how does shifting to a biblical definition of our neighbor change how we relate to other people? And Megan, we'll go ahead and begin with you for this question. Oh boy. Okay, well, the English noun definition of neighbor reads as one living or located near another, which is what we immediately think of when it comes to the word neighbor. However, the Hebrew translation of neighbor reads as rea, which means friend, companion, fellow, or another person. The Greek translation of neighbor, it reads as plesion. That comes from plesios, which stems from pelos, which means to be near. So in applying those definitions of neighbor, when it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, it's not just talking about people that you happen to live next door to. It's you must love any friends, companions, fellows, or any other person you are near to as yourself. And guess what? We happen to be close to other persons pretty much every day. Every day we are interacting with someone somehow. So... Who is our neighbor? Literally, everyone. However, Jesus and his definition of neighbor in Scripture goes beyond even just close proximity. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see people being in close proximity to a person in need and yet deciding not to show any compassion, followed by a Samaritan who decides to help the person in need. And Jesus ends the parable by asking, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man laying on the road? And the response is the one who showed mercy. 
and then Jesus then commands, then go and do the same. By literal definition, the Samaritan and the man lying on the road were neighbors, but what actually defined the Samaritan as a neighbor wasn't the fact that he was in close proximity with a person. Because you see in the parable that you can occupy the same space as someone and not be very neighborly in Jesus' eyes. What defined the Samaritan as a neighbor was the fact that he showed kindness and mercy to another person without strings attached. And this changes how we relate to one another by saying, you know, when it comes to loving one another, it doesn't matter where they are in proximity to you. It doesn't matter where they've come from. It doesn't matter what they've done. That, that's not the point. Nowhere in that parable did the Samaritan stop and ask the man lying down in pain 500 questions about who he is because it's not the point. He saw someone hurting and he acted. Nowhere in that passage is the Samaritan thinking, well, tch, I hope I get paid back for this or, tch, man, I hope he doesn't take advantage of my generosity. That, that's not even, that's so far from his mind. What is on his mind is that he's going to be coming back and he's going to help the man again. So whom we show love to is not the point. Love people. How? By having love that's reflective of God's love for us. And God has shown immeasurable kindness and mercy to us without any strings attached. He sent his only son to save us from the chains of sin and death without asking any questions about who we are. He saw that we couldn't help ourselves on our own, so he sent his son to do it. And nowhere in his thinking when he's like, well, I hope they pay me back or I hope they don't take advantage of my generosity because he knows that nothing we could do could ever repay him. He knows we are fallen creatures, yet he shows mercy in spite of us because that's just who he is. And what's so exciting is that he's going to come back and he's going to defeat Satan once and for all, and we are going to be reunited with him one day. So that is my very lengthy and very wordy response. Mm -hmm. Apologies to those who have studied Greek, and if I mispronounce words. I felt a little <laughs> tremor of pain there, but it quickly subsided. Oh, that's good. <laughs> But no, thanks, thanks for that response, Megan. And yeah. you've shown us how this relates to so much of the larger biblical story mm -hmm. and, and how uh, the way that we think of our neighbor is framed in many ways by the, the character of God himself. Mm -hmm. So thanks for directing our thoughts in that direction. Mm -hmm. John, what would you add to our discussion of this question? Yeah, Megan, thank you for bringing out the Greek and Hebrew context. Yeah. You know, I think Jesus' parable, obviously, when we ask, who is our neighbor, that was asked directly to Jesus, so our minds go there. But I think Jesus does a good job in that parable combining that Hebrew and Greek thought. It's not just someone you're near with. It's not just someone you're a friend or a companion walking down the road with. Mm -hmm. You know, the Good Samaritan happened upon someone that was near and became a friend or companion. Mm -hmm. And I thought about this in, in, you know, we're in a transition to a virtual society more and mm, more. Mm -hmm. I just started a year ago a job that's fully remote. So how do I be a neighbor in a virtual world? I think it's more complex. It's difficult to do a lot of the neighborly things that you would expect and, and hope you see in Scripture in a virtual world. But I'm thinking even Paul, you know, from all the churches, collected an offering that then bring to the Jerusalem church. So even there, they had that idea of a larger community that was virtual and remote from them. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think you can be a neighbor exclusively virtually. There's a lot of neighborly one another things that scripture commands us to do yeah. that you can't do only virtually. So I was happy. I, you know, I'm just getting back from a work trip and I, I really felt like, you know, being in person, I could be a neighbor to my coworkers. Mm -hmm. We are those Hebrew, you know, friend and companions alongside virtually doing the same things, you know, walking the same paths on the same purpose at work. But you lose that sense of community. So going and visiting in person, you build a lot of those relationships and right. uh, friendships. You're able to have those neighborly conversations more than just the work conversation. So it reminds me also that, right, so we live in those both worlds. We have our virtual neighbors and our present neighbors. But I think God always reminds me to be with those people that you're with. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what the Levite and the, who was it, who else? In the, Ooh, it was the Levite priest. and the priest. There it is. Uh, yep. Samaritan. You know, they weren't actively with that person, so they missed beat up guy on the side of the road. The Samaritan changed his mind, and he was with now that person who, who is God's led his path to be in to uh, come across. Mm -hmm. So I encourage you, you know, if you want to be a neighbor, be with those people that you're with. Mm -hmm. Put away the phone, the virtual world for a while and just be with those people. Mm -hmm. That's a great reminder, John, especially as it 
you've mentioned that this command to love our neighbor extends to this great frontier of the virtual world, but yet we ought not to neglect our physical neighbor. And that, that's an easy omission to make as so much of our lives is now lived online. Thanks for sharing those observations. Sam, what would you add to this question? My mind was traveling along some of the same paths as John, really looking at how just our whole society, the way our whole way our cities are built, um, you know, we're so bound to our phones and our cars, these very personal things that make you anonymous and um, in some ways connect you to others, but in other ways are barriers. And so, yeah, I think, I think doubling down on the active component of looking with spiritual eyes to those around you, driving, you know, that can be a case that when you're shopping at the grocery store or in your house or if you're making a point to travel across the street and meet the people that surround you in your neighborhood. We can abstract that away sometimes and we can think of ourselves as global citizens and think about our obligations to our fellow citizens to be politically active or to be all sorts of ways that we can kind of abstract away and I think truly yeah, being present with others, which means maybe not communicating with someone with your phone. Um, that would be a very fine thing to do, but yes, you're choosing, you are, you're choosing to, to be present with um, those around you. I think that's something that is especially tempting, I guess, for parents because it is important to stay in touch with friends and family members, but it can, I mean, I just, I see this traveling around. Uh, maybe people are prioritizing that a little bit too much over being present with their children or helping their children to, or teaching their children how to look with those eyes in different situations if they're at a playground. That is an urgent, uh, I think an urgent need for our generation to reckon with. What does it mean to be a neighbor with a phone? I guess to get practical. Uh, and you guys laid out such a beautiful vision of what God's desire is in our neighboring, in our acts of mercy, and mm-hmm. our looking with Jesus' eyes at people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess, yeah, yeah, it means just to, th- to think about what that looks like in our everyday life today. And boy, there's, there's some work to be done to figure out how it works with technology. As, as you indicated, often there are choices that have to be made. There's so much that demands our attention. Mm-hmm. And choosing to be present where you are, for example, with your kids, often means choosing not to be present in other ways, electronically or with other time commitments as well. And that can be really challenging to navigate as, as parents who have a lot of things that we're called to do in the world, but our, our calling to shepherd the young ones entrusted to our care is absolutely vital and foundational as well. Mm-hmm. One of the thoughts that I had as you guys were talking about being present with someone, I think even when you take away the phone and the technology away from the conversations and when you're actually present with someone, I know for me, I often find that my mind, even as a person is conversating, can still be running 500 different directions of like, okay, I know this person is talking to me right now, but my mind is going here. My mind is thinking this. My mind is still thinking about like these 500 other things that are going on in this day. And so I think another way of being present, yes, take away the technology, but also finding a way to really give the attention to the person that's talking and finding a way to whatever's going on in the back of your mind to kind of put it on mute for a hot second. That way you're not just present physically, that you are also present mentally if you need to be present emotionally as well, and then in a way spiritually. And that's a good reminder that because we're going to be talking about the next commandment as well, and so screens have a really big temptation about living purely, 
but it's a good reminder to pause and remember that the technology, the screens, those aren't inherently evil. Mm-mm. They're just a tool. Yeah. Uh, and what you bring out that, right, even without all the technology, our brains and our human fallenness and frailties can still present themselves. Maybe the phone has a unique way of tapping into some of those at times. The tool is not the issue. Yeah. It's ourselves uh, and God working in us, bringing out about his righteousness in us mm-hmm. that we want to see happen. There's a lot more that we can unpack with this idea yeah. of loving our neighbor, but our neighbors aren't necessarily the only people we're told to love. Mm. And as we think about our lives, we recognize that perhaps some people are easier for us to love than others are. Jesus talked about this near the end of Matthew 5, where he pointed out that even the pagans and tax collectors show love and kindness to those people who are kind to them. But then Jesus calls his followers to a higher standard. He actually commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So as we try to obey this command, how does Scripture inform our understanding of enemies? In other words, who is our enemy? Are these people that we identify as our enemies, or are they people who think of us as their enemies? How does a spirit-led response to enemies differ from a flesh-led response? And then finally, what are some practical ways that we can teach our kids to pursue their enemies with love, as the Catechism says? Sam, we'll start with you. I like this question because this is a question that comes up frequently with a child in public school. You know, <laughs> that's the there's something to, you might even call it the sacrament of bullying, you know, that oh. not an official <laughs> sacrament of the church, but it is such a, a time, uh, so many possibilities for understanding the kingdom of God <laughs> when that difficult situation is there for your child, uh, whether your child's maybe the one who's, you know, got um, uh, a lot to exert on other children or the one receiving it, but this is just something that comes up pretty quickly for children to figure out um, how to handle conflicts with others, and maybe that's not exactly an enemy the way that, you know, Israel related to the Philistines or something, but it is a chance to start working in young hearts when those difficult situations come up because you're talking about some of the most powerful teachings of Jesus to turn the other cheek, to um, go the extra mile, and it's so counterintuitive for us because we we want to seek vengeance, we want to double down, we want to repay blood for blood and I experienced this personally in school too I mean I I remember um, in fourth grade you know really struggling with some relationships with children and my mom you know really counseling me I was very angry and I love my punching bag that was a great toy to have in the house Um, and you know that was a um, good outlet for some of the frustration but more important than that was my mom's teaching at that time, sharing the words of Jesus and really having a chance to think about that and think about how hard it was, but how right it was. And it just spoke so deeply to me. And I feel like I benefited so much from her godly parenting at that time to experience what God's mercy is for my own wrongdoing and then to want to extend that to others. Yeah, I mean, for kids, too, that taking away the vengeance is the power of nonviolent action in general to diffuse violence. Mm-hmm. But it's the grace of God working when it, when it really is working successfully. Mm-hmm. Your language of the sacrament of bullying, Sam, <laughs> captures my imagination. <laughs> Now, obviously, we're using kind of a broader definition of a sacrament than, uh, than when we normally talk about them. But the, the idea that in times of trial and adversity that God meets us there and that he extends his grace to us and he passes on to us the, the benefits of his covenant says something about the role of, of suffering and adversity in, in the Christian life. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a good reminder as so many of us have experienced suffering and adversity. And indeed, Jesus tells us that we ought to expect that. 
and what an encouragement to know that he'll meet us there. So thank you for sharing those thoughts. Mm -hmm. Megan, what do you think about this question? Sure. I think as a kid, it's really easy to paint someone who has wronged them as an enemy and someone who has brought them good as a good guy because they see that all the time in kids' programming. There's a villain, he's doing bad things. There's a hero, he's doing good things. So I think they can often apply that same sort of logic to people in the real world. However, I found as I get older, I see less and less enemies and more just fallen people, which we all are. Now that doesn't excuse when people try to murder or steal or whatever. No, no, that's still wrong. But having that lens does help in remembering that people can change. I don't know about you guys, but this will, this will be a shocker, but before I found Christ, I was a mess. <laughs> uh, a hot, hot, hot mess. <laughs> And honestly, even with the Holy Spirit residing in my heart, I would say I'm still pretty much a mess. But because the Holy Spirit does reside in my heart, God can see that mess and go, oh, oh, no, 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 that's not me. No, get rid of that. No, that's not me. And he can convict us and he can steer us to him. And it's so interesting. I've, I've heard people say that people don't change. But if you look in scripture, that's simply not true. Yes, yes, they can. You know, and when I talk to people and I listen to their walks with Christ and how they've come to know the Lord, it's like, yes, yes, people can change. Enemies can change. Will they always change? No. I see a really good example of that with the Pharaoh in Egypt in the book of Exodus. But, but there's never someone so awful that God can't change their hearts. So when it comes to our response to our enemies, rather than looking for revenge or, or wishing for their demise, our first action should really be to pray. You see that with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel never wished ill to befall the king. Instead, he spent a lot of time in prayer and encouraged a heart change. So pray for a heart change in them, but also in you. Ask God to reveal something that maybe you did wrong and bring it to God saying, hey, like, I want to get revenge. Like, this person hurt me, and I do not want the best for this person. But I reacted this way, and I know that's not reflected of, of you either. So I'm sorry, and I repent, and help me forgive them. And, and thank you for forgiving me. And I think also remembering by the end of the day, there really is only one true enemy. <laughs> Satan is really sneaky at getting us all stirred up and distracted from fighting him. And we can't fall for it. So even in those moments where we feel like we have enemies, just being like, Satan, get out. Stop trying to distract us, you jerk, <laughs> is, is to our benefit. So those are my thoughts. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing those thoughts, yeah. Megan. Yes, I think we would agree Satan is a jerk. And your answer reminds us how... All of us at one time were, were enemies of God, mm -hmm. and yet he has changed us. He has brought us near. And so that redemptive emphasis seems to be part of, of the heartbeat of, of Jesus' teaching about enemies. But as, as you say, it's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, and loving your enemies doesn't mean that you are condoning wrongdoing. No. Uh, but yet the path of Jesus leads us to, to pray for them and, and to wish their, their best, their flourishing, ultimately their, their repentance. Mm -hmm. uh, John, what do you think about this question? Yeah, I think it's, you know, you ask the question, how do we identify our enemies? Are they people who point to us and say, you're my enemy? Or are they people that we see as enemies and, you know, obstructing our purpose or what we see as God's purpose in our life? I think both can be true. And I think scripture maybe talks to both of those, either of those, if they're an enemy, you need to pray for them. Thinking about people changing, I think the first are easier. If somebody points at us and says, you're my enemy, mm -hmm. I think it's easier to pray for them. Mm -hmm. It's easier to see how they could change, yeah. to see how God could work in their life. Yeah. I find it harder if I have identified somebody as an enemy, my heart's already wrapped up in considering them an enemy. And yeah. so it's harder to pray for them. It's harder to seek their good, mm -hmm. um, to do good, to pray for your enemies. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm reminded as well, I don't remember where I heard this first, but talking about trying to see the possibility of change mm -hmm. uh, and remembering that our lives are not a photograph. 
-hmm. you know, it's not, we're not fixed in time. Right. Uh, but our lives are more of a film strip. And mm -hmm. so they're, we're looking at an individual scene or an individual image from that film mm -hmm. as we're interacting with somebody, but we don't know the future. We don't always know the past as well. And so remembering that their life is a film strip, our life is a film strip. So who is our enemy as well? I think Ephesians 6 always comes to mind where Paul writes, you know, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, principalities, and rulers in the heavenly realms. Mm -hmm. uh, that reminder that, yes, that individual person is not our enemy. They may be trapped in the kingdom of darkness, yeah, but they can, re they can be removed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Yeah. And then as well, how, so keeping that in mind, how does a spirit response look like? Uh, I'm reminded of what John Stone Street says a lot, right? Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's understanding if they're in the kingdom of darkness, they've conv been convinced by a bad idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and so looking at them as a victim rather than enemy yeah. uh, and trying to help them come out of that. Robert Sirico also says, we have to be ruthless with ideas, but gentle with people. And so, yes, those ideas have consequences, and they, if they're bad ideas, cause a lot of human harm. Yeah. Uh, and so go after the idea. Point it out as, truth, as a, a falsehood against the truth. Yeah. Uh, but that individual, recognize their humanity uh, and bring that out. Have care and compassion for that individual. Mm -hmm. The answer in this question really hits hard the elements of being patient and peaceful and working with enemies. And I think that's something that can set Christians apart in our political life or something. You know, we'll have confrontations and it can be brought together in the patriotic spirit. And But the kind of relationship to enemy that we have, it can be confrontational. We are called to exhort one another and we have to speak the truth in love that you know does involve a certain amount of confrontation and Jesus was not one to spare words of anger and rebuke for uh, those who were causing people to stumble with their false teaching but it should be done in a way that is still patient and peaceful and Jesus wasn't one to raise up armies or to cast stones to um, to enact uh, a kind of violent judgment in his time. But there's always the promise that at the end of the ages, God will judge. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a reassurance for us. We do have to make certain kinds of judgments now as we seek to do what is right. But ultimately, we rely on God to judge. Mm -hmm. You talk about us having to discern and make judgments uh, I try to think of, you know, stories shape us. And so I, I try to think of stories in scripture where people had to confront their enemies. And I think David's a good example of trying, of, of discerning what the proper response is to an, a quote-unquote enemy at the time. Mm -hmm. We all know the story of David and Goliath, right? There he was clearly an enemy against God, speaking vile things, blasphemy against mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. Goliath was an unfortunate casualty to bring down <laughs> those bad ideas. But then later, right, David is being pursued by Saul, and everybody in David's camp is telling him, Saul's your enemy, you got to take him out. Mm -hmm. And David, you know, fights against that for a long time. Finally, okay, sort of makes a concession. Saul goes into the cave and, to relieve himself, and he cuts off the corner of his robe. And even that, David is ashamed of doing. Yeah. Uh, and comes out, so he resists, but he, he falls in a little bit, but doesn't take Saul's life, and comes out and says, Saul, I'm not pursuing you. Mm -hmm. uh, why are you trying to pursue me and make an enemy out of me? Mm -hmm. um, Saul at least repents for a little while, but shows David's concerning and as well not listening to the voices around him, but trying to listen to what God's voice is. Mm -hmm. David's response to Saul in that moment perhaps gives us a, a picture of, of the concept that Paul talks about in the New Testament about heaping burning coals upon their head. Yeah. We do see that in those acts of love toward the enemy, it can generate a response. Uh, Saul's response, as you say, John, was genuine. It was short-term repentance, but it, it had at least at, at least a transient impact, and that does show us the, the, the power of uh, living this command and the impact that it can have upon our enemies, but also upon those who are watching and observing and, and learning from us. 
there is so much that we could continue to talk about to unpack the sixth commandment. Uh, But let's go ahead and turn our attention to the seventh commandment, which deals with sexual purity and immorality. Now, we are unpacking this commandment in the context of a world that glories in sexual immorality and that increasingly despises sexual purity. And we're right here in the middle of this world with the audacity to try to raise our kids to live lives that are holy and pleasing before God. Friends, we are truly swimming against the current, especially in light of the challenges that are posed by the internet, social media, the entertainment industry, some of the things that have already come up in our conversation. So friends, how do we navigate these challenges with our kids And how do we reclaim and present a biblical vision of the beauty, goodness, and holiness of God-ordained human sexuality? John, we'll start with you for this question. Yeah, thank you. So trying to navigate these, I think starting early, I don't remember again where I heard this, but realizing that the quote-unquote the talk is not really just a one-time thing. It's a, an ongoing, continuous conversation with many different touch points. Mm-hmm. So we already tried to do this early with our kids. Again, I think I referenced you know, phones and screens. Um, I try to teach them that those are powerful tools. A lot like a chainsaw is a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has its purpose. It can be very destructive or it can be very creative. So trying to teach them how to manage screens, especially in our world, but then we have, we, you know, even we purchase books and read to them a lot. Uh, one of the books we read is Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. Uh, so there's an older version and a younger version that we have, but trying to teach them what are good pictures and images to look at. Uh, mm-hmm. And bad pictures will come up as well, whether they're like sexually explicit pictures or violent pictures. Mm-hmm. But also in that conversation, trying not to present it as a, a source of shame, yeah. uh, but a source of, hey, if you see this picture, I want our conversation and our relationship to be one that you're free to come to me and tell me what happened and we can talk through it. And wanting the kids to know that our home is a good place to fail. Mm -hmm. And I want you to fail here and let's work through it so that you're not thrown into the world and when you're an adult and not have experienced it, have no idea how to deal with failure or temptations that you're not exposed to. Mm Thanks, John. That's really helpful. And, and I think it's really compelling that that vision of home as the safe place to fail, recognizing that, that we will have moments uh, that, that maybe aren't uh, exactly shining examples of, of how we want to respond to those things. Uh, but if we instill within our kids a, a fear of failure, then that shuts down that conversation. But making it a safe place for them to fail and get back up again and learn enables that ongoing dialogue with them that you were describing. So thanks for helping to cast a vision for that. Sam, what are your thoughts on this question? Yeah, the, uh, you know, we both, John and I both have younger children. So, you know, it's kind of a trying to imagine, remember what it was like being, you know, coming of age. And of course, you know, the, just the complexities of grown up life too. I mean, the, I guess something that I see as important is yeah, living it out and showing um, showing by example, hopefully the beauty of um, a marriage, what marital fidelity looks like in, in our case, because um, I'm married to a wonderful woman. And, you know, we are trying to show what living in just forbearance with each other or what reconciliation looks like when there are disagreements what it looks like for us to take time for each other and pursue each other. They hopefully just the everyday acts of kindness, of service to each other are things that um, will shine forth and become ingrained as an example and a vision of goodness for our children. So I think, you know, marriage isn't something that happens automatically. You have to. It, it takes work, you know, day in and day out. And and not just trying to show by example, but talking about why we do what we do, too. And trying to, um, trying to get them to see in teaching. That's the, I think that's just paramount. And that is also has to do with how we spend our time. I mean what we value, how we go about our work, and how we go about our hobbies and free time all have to do with what we project as 
the image of a godly life mm -hmm. for our children. So there was a study done by Covenant Eyes. It's an app slash program designed to help people fight pornography and sex addiction. Um, it was done in 2020 that gave a couple of really interesting stats when it comes to kids and sex. From their research, they found that the average age a child is exposed to porn is around 11. And they found that 94% of children will have viewed porn by the time they are 14. So how do we navigate it? I think you guys addressed it, like we talk about it. And we don't be shy of talking about it. We do a big disservice to not only young ones, but people in general, when we as a church and image bearers of Christ do not speak into the topics of sex and sexuality. However, when we have those conversations, we come at it from the context of scripture. It's interesting, on my... On my way to work today, I was thinking about how to explain to someone why it's important to save sex for the context of marriage. And for whatever reason, I was thinking about it and how we apply scripture. When we take scripture out of context by taking verses and rearranging them to say something that they never said or are only have-truths at best, we not only run a risk of damaging ourselves and others, not only by potentially creating false doctrines, but also by missing out on the bigger picture and story of God. Sex, when taken out of context of what it was originally created for, has the potential for massive damage. And how do we know this? Well, look at the people in the Bible who decided to take sex outside of the context of marriage and the destruction that it brought. I mean, Abraham and Sarah's decisions, David's decisions with Bathsheba, and, and the list goes on of people who decided to take sex out of the context of marriage. And, and you, you see someone was even taken advantage of when it comes to Amnon did with Tamar. And you, you see that everywhere. And it doesn't, <laughs> there's lasting consequences for it. It brings anxiety. It brings depression, guilt, shame. And none of those things are part of the big picture of what God created sex for. He created it to bring life, joy, and intimacy. He created it to build a closeness that was never meant to be separated. He created it to be a reflection of the close relationship that we can have with God. But it's a closeness that you experience when God is your only God and no one else. Hence the reason why we have the boundary for marriage, for sex. Those are my thoughts on it. I really like how you brought out the yes. I think it was in my research, you know, Luther was one of them and the reformers that maybe revived it, maybe go back farther. I refer to Andrew for the history behind it. But Luther brought out the point as well that for every no commandment in scripture, there's always also the yes. <laughs> and the catechism bring this out, right? That we'll be talking about stealing and so the opposite uh, is generosity don't mm -hmm. commit adultery okay so live purely in that big yes of sex in marriage and i think a lot of times yes our culture does demand that we say no to a lot of what culture is is pushing mm -hmm. and so we end up saying no 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 wait 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 all the time mm -hmm. uh, but we have to also emphasize the yes and what is sex and marriage created for i remember when we were going through marriage counseling there were three P's that one book, one of our books brought out, right? It's for procreation. We can all obviously yeah. see that. Um, <laughs> but it's also for protection. It mm -hmm. protects and, you know, actively engaging and not withholding from one another mm -hmm. in marriage. It protects you. And so you're not, act, you're not looking for sex outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. But then it's pleasure, right? So there's the big yes there. Mm -hmm. Okay, the world recognizes that this is a pleasing experience. Um, God didn't say don't ever do that, but right. here's the avenue for it. Again, right. those I think we've talked about this before in the podcast of the guardrails and the fences yeah. uh, that the law creates gives a lot of freedom within that. Yeah. Uh, and so there's that freedom to know each other intimately in marriage, to experience that pleasure if we do it in God's way. Yeah. Um, I appreciate in this uh, catechism answer the 
that it's not only focused on marriage, but it does talk about living a faithful single life. And so mm. I'm, I'm curious if I can play the take over the host's role of asking questions. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, where, where are good places in the church where people are thinking about single life? I mean, since the days of Martin Luther, God rest his soul, I love him. But um, the Reformation, we, we really threw out the baby with the bathwater in its monasteries, and at least having some vision for what single life looks like um, and how all the passion of you know marital love uh, how what that can look like when it's focused like a laser on God um, in monastic vows in that day and age but is there uh, do you see a way of talking about living how, how do you talk about you know lifelong single life with children, um, or, you know, acting out in the church, you know, do you, I guess what, one of the things I think about is, you know, there just, there are, are people that you, you come across that, um, in the church that have done this by example, even though it's not something we talk a lot about, but they've, mm-hmm. they've figured it out a way, and, uh, to really do this so beautifully, mm-hmm. and, um, it becomes a, you know, by the example of their life, they show that, this obsession that we have with sexuality and how, you know, you, you supposedly you can't live a satisfied life without having all these sexual encounters, but there are people that show us by their example how to do that mm-hmm. and how beautiful it can be to to stay faithful in that life. I know the people that I listen to, some teachers, podcasts, newsletters. I think they're thinking through that, and they recognize the lack of that in our churches, the lack of that understanding that Paul had, right? I wish you were all single so yeah. that you could be fully devoted in spiritual matters and not all the physical, earthly matters. Mm-hmm. So I think there's maybe a revival in the thought leaders of the church um, that maybe hasn't reached its way down yet, but they recognize that deficit. Yeah, thanks, panelists, for interacting with this. And that's a, that's a great question to raise, Sam. As, as the host, I'm, I'm reluctant to really air a lot of my own thoughts on this. But you, you did mention how we see shifts in, in the history of the church. And if the Middle Ages and the, the emphasis on monastic singlehood and vocation led to a neglect of seeing the, the God-honoring potential of marriage, I think we we could make an argument that to some extent that the pendulum ended up swinging very far the other way under the reformers and those who came after them. And I I would say that there is a lot of room for us in the church today to seek to recover a more biblical vision uh, of service to the Lord, uh, of this idea that the medieval monastics did embody of our highest ambition of being married to God, and, and that is the most important relationship in our life. Mm-hmm. I think maybe there's something there that perhaps we have lost, and I think that that shows how easy it is for us to try so hard on, on focusing on getting certain things right that we end up having blind spots of our own. Yeah. And I, I think it also is a reminder to us of, of how easy it is to hang so many of our hopes on the notion of marriage and yeah. finding fulfillment in a relationship with a, another human being. As we've been reminded, that is a good gift of God. It's given for human flourishing and benefit, but the most important gift is God himself. And so seeing that as our highest privilege, our highest pleasure of being in relationship with him, I think is something that we all do well to seek to recover more fully in our day-to-day lives. So think, thanks for asking those questions. Thanks for wrestling with those questions. Panelists, is, is there anything else that you would add before we move on to the next question? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the Eighth Commandment tells us not to steal. And we're probably pretty familiar with the concept of stealing, especially when it comes to taking what belongs to someone else. However, the Catechism goes farther than this, and it also mentions withholding good from someone that we might benefit. So how would you provide an example of this to children, 
And why should we consider certain acts of withholding or leaving something out or omitting something to actually be a form of stealing? Mm -hmm. uh, Megan, we'll start with you for this one. Thanks. There are a lot of really good examples in scripture of not withholding good from someone. But I think one of my favorite examples is in Acts 18, where we hear about Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. Apollos was, as the scriptures put it, eloquent and competent in the scriptures. And he was teaching in Ephesus, and Aquila and Priscilla notices that. And they also notice that as much as he knew about Jesus, he only knew about the baptism of John. And so they pull him aside and they correct him. Apollos uh, then expressed interest in crossing to Achaia. And even though they had to correct him on some things that he was teaching, they still encouraged Apollos to go and told the disciples to welcome him. And from there, Apollos was a great help to those he served because he was able to show more accurately that Christ was Jesus. So here we see a really good example of what it looks like to not only not withhold good correction, but also what it looks like to not withhold encouragement and praise. Apollos had a lot of good things going for him in terms of teaching scriptures, but there were things that needed to be sharpened, and so Priscilla and Aquila stepped in to be that iron on iron. But notice how after they sharpen him, they don't say, all right, Apollos, you can never teach again. You shall not go and preach ever again because you got that one thing wrong. No, they encourage him to keep going. And we see the good fruit that comes out of it when he continues to go forward. So withholding good is stealing because by withholding that good, you are robbing the opportunities for seeds to be planted and for good fruit to spring up. You are robbing opportunities where people can see glimpses of God. And that's what we've been called to do. We've been called to be reflectors of his goodness to others so that when they see us, they, they wonder, okay, where is that goodness coming from? Where, where, is, where is that light? I, I got to know what it is. Why is it so bright? And then from there, we can point them to God and give him glory and we can go out and build his kingdom. So those are my thoughts on that question. Thanks, Megan, for your passionate response and for taking us on a tour of, of one of the sections of the book of Acts that might be a little more off the beaten path. That's, sure. that's good. Good to, good to wrestle with those things. Mm -hmm. uh, John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I thought at first of our kids and that sharing and taking turns are really big concepts for them to learn. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like daily they have opportunities to practice those and improve their <laughs> learning of those skills. And right, that's when you're not sharing, you're not taking turns, you are robbing the other person of that pleasure of the toy, of the experience, of whatever it is. And that that's an important thing to also, you know, in that way, you're teaching your children to love their neighbor as themselves mm -hmm. uh, and to love others as they love themselves, which obviously is a big thing when you come to be an adult, right? It's not, I don't know, as an adult, we necessarily think of sharing and taking turns. Uh, or using those words, I think may, hopefully we've learned our lesson and it becomes more... Naturally. A, yeah, it comes naturally. Yeah. Um, and so we, we think of others and we say, oh, well, why don't you take this seat? Um, or you know, trying to think of, can't think of an example that we do. But right, it comes more naturally of sharing our food, sharing our time. Mm -hmm. um, then my second thought went to, okay, I know this catechism really well from the songs and the, the children's version only explains the first part about what stealing is. It's mm. taking that which belongs to someone else. Mm -hmm. The kids' version doesn't go into the opposite side, the huh? um, requirement and the obligation that we that you have as someone that has something to share and to share what is good with others. Mm -hmm. And so when I first read that, I thought, this smacks of socialism, or at least to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, mental cognizance, right? Because we grew up, we're taught that Right? Socialism, I haven't seen it practiced globally because uh, it's not, it hasn't been a political movement in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. But right, every, knowing from history, everywhere it's been practiced, it's failed. Some of Churchill's quotes that socialism is the gospel of envy and that it's the equal sharing of miseries. <laughs> okay, that doesn't sound like the human flourishing and the care for others that God teaches us. And so, okay, going back to what is that? So it's actually, I think, more a, a flip side of the perspective. 
and that yes, God does have requirements of, for the poor, and he gives teachings to them, mm-hmm. but this is a teaching to the rich, those that have something, mm-hmm. uh, and that right, the idea in Corinthians that we're blessed to be a blessing to others. Mm-hmm. Um, one of Dave Ramsey's teachings from a Jewish ceremony, I think maybe they did every, every Sabbath, uh, of pouring into a cup and then the overflow is caught in a, another container. That's the overflow is what you're sharing with others. Yeah. Um, and that all of us have our cups overflowed, especially if we're Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're those rich that Paul commands in Timothy, like command those who are rich to do good deeds, be generous, to help others in need. Mm-hmm. And so I think socialism get, gets it wrong in that it flips the obligation that those who are, have something to share with others and turns it into a right of those that do not have for what others have. Mm-hmm. It's not a right. God's given you resources, yeah. but he has expectations for you to use those to honor him. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that, is, that is so good, John. The, the, you pointed out how as Americans, you know, we enjoy an immense privilege and wealth and that that comes with responsibility and I think that's something one way that this definitely applies to us and when I think about raising my children um, yeah I think the the way that leisure can overtake life leisure is good it's a time for culture making in the way that God has formed this world and made us creatures of time, but I think a temptation for us is to let leisure come at the expense of the acts of mercy and the acts of neighborliness, the active component of Christian life that we are called to. So, you know, again, going back to my childhood, I think about, you know, how much time I spent doing video games, which, again, like, in themselves are not bad, but Looking back, I would say I did more video games than I feel like I, I committed this sin by not giving that time and attention to others, using that time for more edifying, edifying both for myself and for others' uh, uses of that time. So that's one example that I, I would think of as a very practical one that I have to teach my children how to enjoy it and how to put limits on it and how to have other goods in mind, those visions of God that you talked about, Megan, mm-hmm. a higher good. Mm-hmm. I really like that you pointed out not just withholding what you physically, like like money or like some of the, the physical treasures that you've been blessed with, but thinking about time. I really like that concept of like one of the most precious things that we probably have is time. And we always seem to think that we never have enough of it but if we take the time to pause and to appreciate that time and to use that time well again to reach out to others and to bless others it can be a real blessing so thank you that was really interesting i never thought of it in that way as as a as a view of time another way that that i don't know if this well, yeah, I think this this might. Um, a mom was just telling me about taking her children to help out with some fall leaf raking, mm-hmm. and how they don't do anything very productive at that time. Generally but not. their presence <laughs> is a blessing and an encouragement to others there. Mm-hmm. So going, even though it's more of an artistic offering for those who are there, was. Yeah, something that she felt like was a way of giving to mm-hmm. it, even if it wasn't the most, you know, um, they weren't the biggest contributors to achieving the stated goal, mm-hmm. so to speak. It's interesting that in some ways our responses to this question have led us back full circle and talking about withholding good from others when it is in our power to act. I'm reminded, Megan, of, of your example of the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan mm-hmm. and how you reference the fact that the Levite and the priest uh, walked in the, along the road and they, they saw the man injured there and they, uh, they did not act. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they presumably had power to, to do something on his behalf but, but chose not to and how this factors into those notions of, of loving our neighbor that, that we talked about and how often we, we can wrong others and we can wrong God 
not only by what we do, but by what we fail to do when certain opportunities are in front of us. And, and thinking about that with our children, that, that ministry of presence and time that you were referring to, I think reminds me as a father and reminds all of us of just wanting to, to have a sense of awareness of the opportunities that are in front of us and wanting to lean into those opportunities and to follow where Jesus is leading in those moments of, of ministry through presence, because those are opportunities that, that we may never experience again yeah. in the same ways. So those are really powerful reminders. Thank you all for sharing your thoughts on this question. As we begin to wrap up our conversation on this catechism answer, one of the themes that has come up is the idea of purity and impurity. And we want to lean into that a little bit for this final question. Impurity could be defined as being unclean, stained, containing contaminants or, or something else that keeps us from being whole or untainted. And as fallen image bearers of God, we recognize that we are all impure. God makes it pretty clear that no one is coming to him with clean hands. We have all hated. We have all had impure thoughts. We have all taken or withheld something from someone. And so it could be very easy for us to let the shame of our past become our identity. So friends, how does the gospel offer us hope as impure sinners? How does Jesus's death and resurrection make a decisive difference in our struggle against sin? And how does that affect how we live as redeemed people in a broken world? John, we'll start with you. Yeah, as I thought about this one, you know, I think we use the catechism, but then also we use the commandments. If you're familiar with the way of the master, uh, we use those to point out our sin, that we are sinful, bring us to a knowledge of that sin. And then from that springboard into the hope offered in Christ. Mm -hmm. And reflecting on it made me think of, you know, long before there was the way of the master, there were the catechisms. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, if you read ahead, boiler alert, you know, you'll find that, okay, well, first we see that we see that we're sinners. So what is the purpose of the law if we can't even keep it? Mm -hmm. um, there's a catechism question for that. <gasps> and then this question, right? Okay, so now we can't keep it. Is there any hope for us to be redeemed? That's another catechism coming up, right? Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes, there is. Uh, and that's the hope that Christ offers. Mm -hmm. um, so I love how the catechisms work and build on each other like that Yeah. in the way the master. But I've also realized that in the serious sin struggles in my life where I've battled with it and it's been months or years long sin issues repeatedly, you know, crying out to God, I can't do this, mm -hmm. I'm falling trying to develop patterns like we talked about before to not get myself into situations or thoughts that would lead to me falling. Yeah. Where I've had success against those battles, it's all been because of God's grace and his changing of my heart, yeah. changing of my desires. And so, yes, and all that is possible, you know, in Christ, through his spirit living within us. An important element in, that I see in your response, John, and, and in this question is how much Jesus works through the church, how we are Jesus's body in the church working together. It's a gift, a gift from God that we can have belong in community to one another and that we're a community that works together, helps each other in serving and proclaiming God's word together that we hold fast to it and um, try to encourage each other, point each other to the good of Jesus's life and ministry, spur each other on. We remember Jesus's death and resurrection at the table of communion, and we remember our reliance. All that we are is dependent on God and so much of uh, so many of the, the difficult uh, problems that we're talking about in this these series of questions um, it's only with the help of our fellow believers worshiping together the time of teaching time of personal um, friendship and fellowship that we have with other believers in the church that we can walk this path mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really helpful reminder. Thank you, Sam. Mm -hmm. Megan, what would you add? 
So I talked earlier about how in the Bible we see a lot of people who have sexually stepped out of bounds, even people who were considered men and women of God. Um, and yet we see hope for them. God, in spite of their broken decisions, still brought some good out of it. Those people suffered consequences, but God's plan still came to fruition. Abraham was still a father of many nations, and Solomon still built the temple. And Jesus still came to save us and die for our sins, just as what was predicted. The hope the gospel provides is not that when we accept Christ, we become perfect people who never fail again. The hope the gospel provides is that when we accept Christ and fail, we can rest in the fact that there is not one failure that is too big to be covered by his grace. There's not one failure that cannot be redeemed through him. There's not one failure that we can make that can stop the Father's plan from being fulfilled. And how does Jesus' death and resurrection make a difference in how we fight sin now? It makes a difference because before Christ, we were in bondage. We were slaves to our sin without any hope that we could ever be free. And then Jesus came and put that sin to death once and for all. We no longer have to live our lives chained to the shame of our past, present, and future sins because it is all dead through Christ. So as we continue to walk in our journeys with Christ, we can walk in confidence knowing that when we stumble and fall, we don't have to stay there. We can get back up and we can try again because there is always hope in Christ. And that is a gift that is made for everyone and anyone who calls out to him. Those are my thoughts. Preach it, Megan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a great place to, to end, focusing on Jesus Christ, on his grace, and on the second chance that we have through the gospel. Mm -hmm. So, panel, thank you so much for joining us for this time together today. This was a really eye-opening and thought-provoking conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, friends, if any of you listening to this podcast today have questions or comments, please feel free to drop them below or contact us at the church office.